We are here today for an ATS podcast through the Assembly on Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology. My name is Rachel Knipe, and I am an instructor in medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Mass General Hospital. Today we will be discussing a recently published paper entitled Telomere Length and the Use of Immunosuppressive Medications in Idiopathic Pulmonary Fibrosis, published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in December 2018. We are so fortunate to have four of the authors on this paper participating in our discussion today. I'm joined on the telephone by the following four authors. Dr. Chad Newton, Assistant Professor of Medicine at University of Texas Southwestern in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and the first author of the paper we will be discussing. Dr. David Zhang, Senior Fellow at University of Texas Southwestern in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Justin Oldham, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of California, Davis in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and the Director of the Interstitial Lung Disease Program at UC Davis. And Dr. Ganesh Raghu, Professor of Medicine, Pulmonary and Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Washington, Seattle the director of the Center for Interstitial Lung Disease, University of Washington Medicine, Interstitial Lung Disease, Sarcoid, and Pulmonary Fibrosis Program, and the co-director of the Scleroderma Clinic, also at University of Washington in Seattle. Thank you all very much for participating today. So to, to begin our discussion, I wanted to ask Dr. Newton if he could start by sharing with us how the idea to perform this study came about and give us an overview of the main results of the study. Yeah, thank you very much, Rachel. So we first developed uh, the idea of this project a few years ago. Uh, really, we, we all know that the results of the interim panther analysis uh, showed um, that patients with IPF who were treated with a combination therapy, including prednisone, azathioprine, and N-acetylcysteine had an increased risk for uh, harm uh, with that treatment strategy. Our group and others have since shown that short telomere length really is overrepresented in patients who have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and that telomere length uh, is a prognostic biomarker that can identify patients who may have a worse survival and even faster rate of progression. We also know that patients with extremely short telomere length and pathogenic variants in telomere-related genes, specifically in TERT and TERC, uh, have been associated with an immune deficiency phenotype uh, especially in patients, uh, childhood patients, who have a disorder known as dyskeratosis congenita. These immune abnormalities really can manifest in a number of different ways, and they can be fairly subtle, such as in reduced numbers of lymphocytes and impaired proliferation of lymphocytes and even dysregulated immune cell signaling. So we wondered if the exposure to immunosuppressant medications would unmask this subtle immune deficiency phenotype in adults who have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So as such, we hypothesized that a pharmacogenomic interaction between telomere length and the use of immunosuppressant medications may partially explain the results of the original panther study. To address our hypothesis, we uh, utilized DNA samples and then primary data from the panther study, as well as two additional replication cohorts, one from the placebo arm of the ACE IPF study, which evaluated the use of warfarin in IPF, and the other from our own retrospective IPF cohort here at UT Southwestern. Uh, through our analysis, we did identify that there seems to be a pharmacogenomic interaction between short telomere length and the exposure to immunosuppressant medications. 
uh, in those patients with IPF. Specifically, in the patients with telomere length less than the 10th percentile after adjusting for age, who were put on the combination therapy with prednisone, azathioprine, and NAC, had a higher risk of the composite endpoint of death, transplant, hospitalizations, and a decline in forced vital capacity in all three of the uh, tested cohorts. Additionally, we found that the risk really was not evident in IPF patients with a telomere length that was greater than the 10th percentile after adjusting for age. This association even remained con uh, consistent after adjusting for age in uh, baseline forced vital capacity. So based on our findings, we concluded that telomere length may not only be a prognostic biomarker, but may uh, also be helpful when choosing potential therapies for patients with uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So, so, Rachel, this is Dinesh Raghu. Um, this observation um, is, is really very novel uh, because those of us who have been using prednisone, azathioprine, and NAC for a long time following the Epigenia study that was published back in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2005, everybody was uh -huh. at the moment using the prednisone, azathioprine, NAC combination with reservation of the immunosuppression. We now have a very good biological genetic explanation of why these patients do badly and poorly with immunosuppression with a precise genetic explanation of the uh, reason why these patients in the Panther IPF and in the SIPF uh, did poorly associated with immunosuppression. So I really think that this is a very novel observation that helps the better management of patients uh, moving forward. Yes, I agree. Um, I think this study was really fascinating. Um, and because after the Panther study came out, you know, we didn't know why the patient, there was increased mortality. Um, and this study starts to answer that question of why. So this connection also answers, because we were under the impression like any other clinician with the immunosuppression that maybe there is more infections and maybe it is an immunosuppression related, but now we know that it is really the genotype and the telomere shortening and the interaction with immunosuppression is, uh, is a bad combination. Yes. Um, I, one question that I have to ask is, you know, the it was a combination of medications in Panther, so it was prednisone, azathioprine and N-acetylcysteine, as you mentioned. Um, do you have any sense from this data about which of those medications could be driving it, or it may not be possible to, to get that out of this current study? That's a great uh, question, Rachel. This is Chad. So as part of our study, we went back and looked at the final Panther cohort uh, that looked at N-acetylcysteine compared to placebo, and we did not find a similar pharmacogenomic uh, association between telomere length and the use of N-acetylcysteine. We also looked at the ACE uh, IPF study that and just included patients on prednisone and azathioprine, and then also looked at our UT Southwestern cohort using a combination of prednisone, azathioprine, and mycophenolate. And the association really seemed to be consistent in patients who were given the combination immunosuppression. And so we think it's mm -hmm. likely either either the combination of prednisone with one of the cell cycle inhibitors or one of, the, uh, one of those medications by themselves. But based on our data set, we're unable to differentiate between those. But we don't think it's related to the endocetylcysteine itself, at least when looking at telomere length 
uh, as an interaction. Chad, that's an in, that is a useful observation uh, because with the telomere shortening, there is also the concern and association with bone marrow failure and bone marrow suppression. We also know that in other patient population where immunomodulating drugs such as mycophenolate and azathioprine have been used, they cause bone marrow suppression as well, independently of telomere shortening. So this combination of telomere shortening that has been associated with the bone marrow suppression and bone marrow failure, as well as the addition of the drug that suppresses may be the reason why this was a, a very bad uh, combination or a killer effect, if you will, compared to the N-acetylcysteine alone. Uh, and in that regard, uh, you know, you, you have done uh, studies, we have done studies with the N-acetylcysteine and other genotype uh, that you may wish to comment about as well. Yeah, I know, Dr. Oldham, I don't know if you had any thoughts about the other studies looking at the N-acetylcysteine and, and the genetics involved. Yeah, that's an interesting question. We sort of found the opposite of uh, what Chad and Christine did here, which was uh, we didn't find much of a signal in the triple therapy arm, but we found that with the right uh, tall genotype, those who received NAC actually did better. Um, but I think, you know, what this study and that prior study showed is just the great potential for looking at biomarkers in these clinical trial and registry data sets to start to you know, move, move towards personalized medicine where we find these molecular uh, subtypes that may be more inclined to benefit from certain therapy. Great. So another question I had was that the, um, the rate of um, leukocyte telomere length less than 10 percentile was higher than in some of the prior studies. Um, in the Panther study, you guys found 62% of the um, patients studied had the had leukocyte telomere length less than 10th percentile, and in the ACE IPF, 56%. Were you surprised by these findings? Uh, yeah, we found that it was, sorry, this is Chad again. So we, we found that it was pretty interesting that the proportion of patients with telomere length that was less than 10th percentile was so high in both of the, uh, the, the clinical trial cohorts. Um, we've previously seen in other studies uh, that we've done, specifically one in, in patients with hypersensitivity pneumonitis, that shortened telomere length less than the, the 10th percentile was also associated with radiographic and pathologic kind of, quote, IPF-like features, including honeycombing and uh, uh, dense fibrosis. So it's possible that the way that the IPFNet studies were designed, in which they were really looking for patients with very strict uh, IPF features, may have enriched these populations for patients with similar genomic backgrounds, including short telomere length patients. So there are several different ways to measure telomere length. Um, can you describe the method that you used in this paper and why you chose it? Yeah, so there, this is, let's chat again. So there's uh, multiple different ways to measure telomere length, all of which kind of have their advantages and disadvantages. The two main methods that are uh, available commercially are the qPCR method that we used in, the, in this uh, project and then the flow fish method. Both methods mm -hmm. are designed to measure the average telomere length. Uh, and allow for comparisons uh, with a reference population in order to kind of calculate an, an age-adjusted telomere length for an individual. The FlowFish method uses a fluorescent signal intensity to quantify the telomere size or the telomere length within cells that are sorted by flow cytometry, so you can actually determine telomere length within cell populations. 
This requires fresh cells or fixed cells uh, to be used appropriately. The qPCR method that we use is, that we used in the paper uh, uses PCR to calculate the ratio between a telomere uh, repeat copy number and a single copy reference gene using a pulled genomic DNA sample, which is what we had available for this study. So this is why we chose the qPCR method. In addition, kind of from a research standpoint, my mentor and the senior author on this paper, Dr. Christine Garcia, has shown really high correlation with the, this qPCR method and uh, Southern blot method. Uh, in addition, we've, mm -hmm. we've used a similar technique in other studies and have shown really high reproducibility and low variability across a wide variety of, of clinical uh, disease processes. So after the Panther studies were published, we, we all, as a as community, stopped administering prednisone, azathioprine, and N-acetylcysteine to IPF patients, but we still sometimes administer steroids to IPF patients during acute exacerbations. Um, I wonder if anyone would like to comment on whether this data has implications for the management of acute exacerbations. Um, this is this is Ganesh, uh, um, so I can comment on it uh, because at least to my observation as well as the data, the steroids alone or corticosteroid alone, I don't think has got any implications with the telomere shortening and the adverse effect. So I don't mm -hmm. think that worried about giving corticosteroids for acute exacerbations even though we have a patient with telomere shortening. Um, so th that said, the acute exacerbations are a relatively small number, and, and so, so future studies will need to be determining or clarifying this. But at this moment of uh, biology understanding, in my mind, I do not think corticosteroids have an adverse effect in patients with uh, shortened telomeres. I don't know if uh, Chad or uh, David has uh, other uh, data to uh, contradict me. <laughs> this, is, this is Chad. So, uh, no, I don't have any data that would specifically contradict, but I, I think it's a little bit unclear also the uh, whether prednisone alone, based on the data that we have now, is, is you know, harmful in this setting. And I think, Ganesh, you hit on the point kind of uh, uh, right that we, we need kind of prospective studies of patients with acute exacerbations where we're collecting samples to know if the way that we're treating them is causing any, uh, any harm, uh, specifically with the steroids. I would say that in, in patients with acute exacerbations who are being treated with uh, more intense immunosuppression, uh, those, this study would suggest, although it would you know, we don't have any data to actually prove this, that those, those regimens could be harmful in that setting. And this is Justin. Um, I think another important point that this study brought up was specifically within the UT Southwestern um, cohort, uh, where you guys included mycophenolate as well. Uh, we're not able to parse prednisone from the azathioprine, but uh, also keeping in mind that a good number of patients in the UT Southwestern cohort received mycophenolate, and, you know, the signal is still seen with that group is important. That, that opens up a thing in my mind when mycophenolate has been brought in in the, in the UC Southwestern. So were these patients non-IPF patients receiving mycophenolate then? No, these were all IPF patients. So some of but the patients, why would they be receiving mycophenolate? 
So before the Panther study, this our, our retrospective cohort, oh, uh, well, well before the Panther study, and so some patients could not tolerate azathioprine for some reason, or the clinician just preferred mycophenolate over azathioprine. In yeah, the, that's an important observation because, as you and we all know now, that that the mycophenolate is becoming a a new kid on the block for immune modulating drugs for inflammatory fibrotic lung disease, which is other than IPF. So that is also an important observation, which then begs to future studies to clarify whether we should be concerned about mycophenolate for non-IPF patients, especially with telomere shortening. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, as, as you guys all know, shortened telomeres have been found in patients with other fibrotic diseases, non-IPF ILDs, such as HP and NSIP. Um, do, you have, do you guys have any plans to look at telomere legs correlation with immunosuppression in these other patient populations? Yeah, Rachel, this is Chad again. Um, yes, we do have plans to look at uh, the non-IPF fibrotic ILD patients. Uh, to see if this is a class effect, you know, of immunosuppression in general or specific drugs uh, like azathioprine or mycophenolate or even prednisone alone. You know, if, a, if this is a true pharmacogenomic interaction between telomere length and, and use of a single medication or a class of medications, then we would expect to find a similar interaction across a variety of non-IPF fibrotic ILDs, although the magnitude may be less just given that their disease course is is different in general than in IPF. I just want to reiterate what everyone's been saying that I think you've touched on probably a more relevant question moving forward after this paper. As you know, no one here is expecting to revisit use of prednisone as a thioprene or NAC for IPF patients, but the implications here is that we can find a biomarker that interacts with these medications and that short telomere lengths have prognostic value in non-IPF ILD. So that's where we hope that our paper will lead to actionable changes in management. So the, this really has a major um, implication to the lung transplant candidates, uh, potentially for the IPF with telomere shortening, because post-lung transplantation, all, virtually all patients need to be on immune-modulating drugs such as tacrolimus and mycophenolate has been the standard of care now. And in this cohort of patients who are susceptible for bone marrow suppressions and failure, we need to be very, very careful in terms of screening patients for the lung transplant recipients for the telomere shortening and third and third mutation, and then also be on the alert side proactively in terms of immune modulation therapy, as well as be aware of the bone marrow suppression in this patient population. Yeah, that's, very, that's a very important point. Um, thank you. I think a lot of pulmonary clinicians um, are asking the question, should we be measuring telomere lengths in all of our IPF patients? You alluded to those um, approaching the transplant period, but I wonder if you want to uh, have a comment on that, Ganesh. Um, yes, I do have a comment uh, on this important question because that is not only the pulmonary physicians are asking the question, Patients are coming to the clinic forward and asking the question in everyday clinical practice uh, to have a genetic code testing. The guideline committee for the 2018 guideline 
for the diagnosis for IPF did address this question very carefully, including inputs from Mary Armonius, who has been one of the forefront investigators in the third interpretations and genetic uh, uh, um, factors for IPF. So the guideline committee did not recommend, based on the evidence to date, that genetic testing to make the diagnosis of IPF is needed for all patients in routine clinical uh, practice. That said, I think it is appropriate to consider measuring third-term transmutations um, and telomere shorting in patients who have any suggestions or evidence of mild uh, leukocytosis or leukopenia or abnormal peripheral blood count that would alert the probability of the telomere shortening of our third-term mutations, especially, again, patients considered for lung transplantation. And, and so my practice has been that I constantly look out for uh, complete blood count abnormalities, thrombocytes abnormalities, and then discuss the genetic testing in a subgroup of these patients at this present uh, time. Thank you. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? Yeah, Rachel, this is Justin. Um, I will echo what I said. We have a clear population in which this testing should be done, but certainly we can use, you know, increased pretest probability based on some cardinal features of a short telomere syndrome to inform our decision-making. The Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation um, is currently putting together um, an opinion piece uh, by key leaders in the field about uh, in which patients telomere length testing and other genetic testing should be considered acknowledging that it's not a consensus statement, um, but at least something to help inform some clinicians who, who may have this question. And just to continue the same train of thought in terms of uh, um, susceptibility for bone marrow suppression, once we then, let's say, find out that the third and third mutation telomere shorting in a person with some leukocyte abnormalities are present, that will also increase the alertness or the pulmonologists to be looking for pulmonary AV malformations, uh, such as mm -hmm. looking for signs of uh, congenital disc keratosis, because pulmonary AV malformation can be very occurred, will not be discovered uh, routine CT scans, and, but these patients will have significant hypoxia. And in fact, the, 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 the uh, congenital disc keratosis foundation is very, very much queued in in terms of the pulmonary of fibrosis aspects, and so that will certainly lead on to other discovery in terms of pulmonary AV malformations in this uh, patient's uh, uh, populations uh, who have telomere shortening and third mutations. Great, thank you. Um, in addition to patients coming to clinic asking about their own telomeres and telomere mutations, um, <clears throat> they're also coming and asking about family members and what are the implications of these mutations are having short telomeres on the on relatives. Um, David, I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. What counseling do we give to family members of patients identified to have short telomeres or to have these mutations? Thanks, Rachel. Um, I think this is a very good question that deserves more investigation um, because certainly it's tempting to utilize telomerase, telomerase mutations in family members as a form of a screening tool. I think the issue here is that there is variable penetrance and the fact that not all telomerase mutations are created equally. And furthermore, this is a population of patients that we don't have a lot of longitudinal data on. I mean, certainly we have cases where patients 
have known damaging variants that are associated with short telomere length, as well as describe cases of familial pulmonary fibrosis. But there are also, even amongst known carriers of damaging variants, the disease prevalence and manifestation is not uniform. I'll add another point that, you know, the mechanistic link between telomere length and IPS is still an area of active investigation. But if we presume that the relevant cellular consequence of a telomerase mutation is shortened telomere length, then it's also important to keep in mind that multiple factors go into a telomere length, including environmental factors, exposures, as well as a starting telomere length. We know, for example, that telomere lengths have an epigenetic inheritance. So, and I think overall, these patients likely represent a higher risk population, but where to draw the line on screening these patients or not is not something that we're ready to make prime time just yet. That's an extremely good point, David. This is Ganesh again, uh, because the other factors that will need to be factored in is while we made we might discover about what 25 to 30 percent of sporadic or familial IPF patients may have telomere shortening or tert mutation. It's also the other side of the coin. In about 70% of patients, even though we know that they have familial IPF or familial ILD based on the family history, we are still discovering other genomic signatures that may not be presently overt, but uh, those kind of studies will need to be uh, done in ongoing clinical studies and genetic studies, so it's not yet prime time at the moment, but on the other hand, it certainly is a very fertile area that, that warrants uh, ongoing continued uh, uh, research. Yeah, this is uh, Chad. I'll just add also, when, when talking about genetic testing for, for family members, something that we always have to keep in mind too is appropriate genetic counseling. Um, we should really partner with our genetic counselors in making sure that both affected and unaffected family members um, really understand the implications of a positive test and what that means and also the implications of a negative test because as David alluded to earlier, the penetrance for each one of these uh, damaging variants is different uh, across families. And so as clinicians, even you know, if we suspect someone has one of these mutations, we do the genetic testing, they don't have the mutation or their telomere lengths are not all that short, we still, you know, it's still a little bit unclear on what we do with that information, how we follow the patients over time. This study brings up the question of how should they be treated, especially in the non-IPF population. So there's still, uh, this is still an area that needs uh, a lot of research to, to get the clinicians a sense of what we should be doing. Correct. The other problem with this is, is, uh, is even though let's say we have a risk factor with, with an identified genotype uh, for pulmonary fibrosis, we are not at the present time able to say when the other sibling or the offspring will manifest the disease, at what age, or is it going to be later on 30, 40, 50 years, or is it going to be a problem in their offsprings or grandchildren for the CKD uh, development. So those are all the things that are really need to be worked out very carefully in ongoing uh, familial and genetic counseling studies. Okay, so we'll all be waiting to see what comes out over the next couple of years and following this field very closely. Uh, this is actually One other thing that um, that comes to my mind is uh, an offshoot uh, another uh, pharmacogenomic study 
uh, that has implications of uh, potential therapeutic aspect in terms of precision medicine is concerned uh, that uh, Justin already alluded to in a, another cohort of patients in the same IPF-NET studies that we looked into the uh, genotypes of TOLIP uh, polymorphism and there is a, a data to support the use of N-acetylcysteine in a cohort of patients, but the study are, is being currently planned in a precision medicine clinical trial for pharmacogenomics, and Justin may be able to allude to that. Uh, Justin? Yeah, it's Justin. So the precisions trial, um, if funded, will look at N-acetylcysteine therapy um, compared to placebo in patients with the specific call-up genotype that Ganesh mentioned which represents about 25% of uh, patients with IPF. I was just going to say kind of one thing kind of in conclusion of, uh, of this study is I think it highlights the usefulness of collecting genomic and genetic information in patients who are enrolled in randomized clinical trials, either, you know, through public funding or through private funding, because, you know, there, there may be things in the future that come up where we would like to look back and see if there were specific manifestations or responses uh, based on some pharmacogenetic uh, interaction. And what we've seen, at least in the IPFNet study, is, is that, or the group of studies, is that only a subset of these patients can send it to the genetic sub-studies. And it kind of limits some of the post hoc analyses that could be done in the future to start to generate hypotheses regarding uh, this precision medicine and how we can start using this information in clinical practice. And so I think going forward, this should be something as a community that we really rally behind and uh, encourage uh, people designing these clinical trials to include uh, banked specimens or genetic uh, samples for future use so that we can continue down this path of, uh, of, re of research. I think you well said uh, because uh, proactively we did think of this in the IPF next studies that obviously um, resulted in this novel observation. So I think uh, that every clinical trial moving forward must have um, samples cryopreserved for DNA and cryopreservation for RNA for such molecular genetic studies that is going to be more discovering the precision medicine approach. I just wanted to say, you know, that's very true of what Ganesh and um, Chad just said about clinical trial, reg uh, clinical trial data sets and future trials moving forward. But I would also put in a plug for the registry uh, sets around the country and the world even, um, that the more samples we can bank, the better chance we have of answering these, these pressing questions. Chad just uh, had a nice paper published in ERJ looking at uh, patients with tissue disease and IPATH and you know, as you can see in that paper, even with three different centers, um, we still didn't have a, a huge number of patients. And so it's really going to take a large group of, of centers collecting these data in order to have enough numbers to answer these questions meaningfully. And Rachel, this is David. I'll add one additional point to what everyone has said already, but especially kind of uh, the, the importance of collecting genetic information in these sorts of trials. Um, you know, as, as uh, genomic technology and next-generation sequencing becomes more and more affordable and accessible and scalable, it can get to a point where we're now talking about whole exome sequencing costing three digits instead of four digits, and whole genome sequencing 
being able to uncover non-coding regions, as well as a way to impute um, telomere length from just that data. So the importance of the genetic aspect of this disease, as well as the importance of collecting genetic information in clinical trials, I think, is becoming more important than ever. Great. Thank you guys all so much. Um, this has been a really informative uh, conversation, and I appreciate all of your participation. As you know, the PANTHER trial was paradigm shifting in the way we treat the, uh, patients with IPF, and this study really in, is novel in the way that it dissects apart why there was increased mortality there, and it really offers insights um, into where the research in this field goes in the future.